Hey ya girlies, it's me, Devlin Camp. This is a special queer serial announcement coming to you from the future, 2023. You're listening to an episode from the past, during which you might hear me plug some bonus content, especially in the credits. But as of 2023, here's everything you need to know if you want more queer serial, or if you want to support my many ongoing LGBTQ history projects. I got a lot going on. You can sign up for periodic email updates at the link for everything in the episode notes. First off, you can now listen to my entire backlog of Queer Serial bonus episodes on Apple Podcasts, just like you listen to the regular episodes. Just head to the Queer Serial show page on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to additional bonus episodes for $2.99 a month. Those episodes are everything from my Patreon, minus the visual stuff, but all of the bonus episodes. It includes all of the spin-off episodes, Forgotten Fairy Tales, the White Knight Riots interviews, all of my Mattachine meeting interviews, Randy Wicker Radio, etc., 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 every episode of everything I've ever made. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts for $2.99 a month, or still for $3 a month on Patreon if you want the bonus episodes and all of my visual research and my archive dives included, and behind the scenes of my Randy Wicker documentary. Also, If you're a Spotify kind of girl like me, you can also get all of my bonus episodes through Spotify now too. Just go to the podcast section and search Queer Serial Bonus Shows and there's a whole feed of Queer Serial Bonus Shows. And if you wanna get some gay merch while also supporting my queer history projects, check out the new Queer Serial Etsy shop. Etsy.com slash shop slash queer history uplift. There's a link in the episode notes here. I've got podcast merch from throughout the series and also lots of queer history related items like postcards from Mona's 1930s lesbian bar and Marsha P. Johnson stickers with her own handwriting that says gay love always straight from the Wicker and Johnson archive that I've been working on. And I've got gorgeous mugs that say queer history is world history. Other stickers that say drag is not a crime with a real photo of drag queens being arrested. And I've got these warning stickers that you can put in textbooks that are lacking queer history to warn future readers. Lots of other buttons and other stuff on Etsy too. There are links to everything in the episode notes here and at QueerSerial.com or just search for me on Instagram, Etsy, Patreon, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I think that's everything. While you're on QueerSerial.com, by the way, check out the new episode guide. You can explore the entire podcast series episode by episode with all the research and transcripts and bonus episodes and lots of photos and videos from the true history that I cover, all at QueerSerial.com. Finally, last thing, you don't have to, but if you'd like to, go ahead and catch up on all four seasons of Queer Serial and the bonus episodes before season five comes out this October, Queer History Month. The new season is a standalone story in our history and a spin-off of an event that I briefly touched on in Season 3, Episode 7, if you want a hint. Stay tuned. Thanks so much for all of your support. I literally couldn't do it without you. Enjoy the show. This podcast uses text from real homophile-era publications, letters, and organizational documents read by voice actors. The show has identifying terms that may now be out of date. Well, I think we should open with our stock question we always ask everybody when we first start talking with them, and that is, um, how did you hear about the OB and the latter? Well, um, I heard about the OB through Mattachine. Oh, Mattachine in New York? Yeah. I used to go to the meetings, to their public meetings. Uh-huh. They have all these advertised in the Village Voice. Yeah. Yeah. And I have this thing about going to lectures anyway. Uh-huh. So this particularly, I used to go. 
Um, and I used to pick up some of their literature there on the yeah. table, and in a couple. And then I got on the mailing list and I became a member. And Wait, mean DLB's literature was there? No, Mattachine's literature. Oh, yeah. But it mentioned DLB, and mm -hmm. it gave the address. And so I just sort of wandered down. <laughs> and Wonderful. There There's our justification for plugging other... Oh, definitely. Yeah, I, can't, I, you know, I can't recommend it strongly enough. Mm -hmm. well, it's a back-scratching affair. You scratch yeah. our back. Exactly. I don't know how I've lived in this sort of vacuum, but I've simply never heard. <coughs> I'm from the Midwest, you know, uh, but I've never heard of DLD. But I've never heard of any kind of organization of lesbians or, you know, to promote the cause of lesbians. No, not at all. Or for that matter, of managing. On a winter day in New York City, early 1966, the editor of the latter, Barbara Giddings, and her photojournalist lover, Kay Tobin Lehusen, meet with the New York Daughters of Belitis vice president, Ernestine Eckstein, a black woman who marched in the largely white picket lines in D.C. and Philadelphia last year. The editors are interested in Ernestine's story for the magazine. I moved to New York in uh, May of 63, almost three years ago. Oh. Yeah. It took you all that time, did <laughs> <laughs> Well, it hasn't taken me all this time. I sort of went through this soul-searching bit of deciding if I were you know, uh -huh. uh, where I stood. And then once having decided that, the next, uh, on the order of, 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 uh, of the agenda was to find a way of being in the movement. Because I always assume there was a movement or there should be, uh -huh. you know, and having once decided where you are, you then decide what you would do with really? that. Really? Yeah. You mean you, and that's you decided way it was. you were a lesbian and then you, you decided, well, there must be a movement? I'd like um, to find it. That is about the... So funny, I don't know how it happened now. But yeah. did you... I really you, don't. And you didn't know there were other people who felt the way you did? No, I didn't. I really didn't. I didn't and what, what yeah. did you think about your uniqueness? How did it, how did it affect you? Well, I used to think, now, what's wrong with me, you know? Um, but I thought maybe, you see, I've always thought of the impression, I think, that there was nothing unusual about people reacting to other people, regardless of sex. I've never thought of it in terms of homosexuality. But I, I, I've always thought that love, you know, sort of uh, transcended any kind of uh, label, like, you know, uh, black, white, man, woman, this sort of thing. So it's never been that far. Ernestine is from South Bend, Indiana. She studied journalism, government, and Russian at Indiana University, where photos show she was often the only person of color in a group. She was an officer in the NAACP chapter, and she worked on the student newspaper. Now in New York, she's a social worker and a member of CORE, the Congress of Racial Equality. Well, did you, do you think that because you were accustomed to thinking in terms of a minority group with a cause and organizations to promote that cause, that you assumed that this other minority group would also have a cause um, the organizations? I think that was a definite influence. I was always a part of the NAACP, you know, which is a rather conservative. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, CORE came along, SNCC came along, and yeah. all these other movements. And I got out of NAACP and joined CORE. Uh -huh. you know, You've just been waiting for the more yeah. progressive exactly. groups to come SNCC? along. Right. Well, there's so many uh, homosexuals that we talk with, mm -hmm. particularly out in the Midwest or some isolated part of the country, mm -hmm. who never dreamed that there'd be an organization. Really? 
Well, you know, I, I, I have a lot of faith in New York. Oh, yeah. good. Um, so do I. Well, then you came to New York you and you did tell us. Oh, God. We're all these faggots running around the big shop. Don't place with people like you. No, no, as a matter of fact, I had a friend in college who had come to New York earlier. Um, he was my best friend. I never knew why. It was never a, a sexual relationship, never even a romantic one. Very platonic, but. Now, he was a homosexual, and I didn't know it until I came here. Did he know it? Yeah. Oh, he knew it. But he didn't tell you. And he didn't tell me, <laughs> you know. So we had a very good relationship going, you know. We could do everything together, you know, really communicate. And just the best of friends, but never any romance. You know, and I, did, I liked it this way, you know, and so did he, and I never understood why. But I never, I never questioned why either. And I came to New York, and he was one of the first person I looked up, and he says, uh, Ernestine, you know I'm gay? And I thought, well, you're happy, so what? You know, <laughs> I didn't know the term gay. And he explained it to me, and all of a sudden, you know, all of a sudden things began to click. To click, uh -huh. you know. Uh, and at this time, I was sort of again emotionally involved with my roommate. Anyway, and I thought, am I sexually, you know, I did. And it, it dawned on me that maybe I was sexually attracted to the girl, and not just emotionally attracted. Yeah. You know, so it was like this. It's, it's very funny, you know, it's, it really is. He told you they were all around and you could hardly yeah, believe? Yeah, you know, and so he sort of introduced me to the homosexual oh. community, you know, because he's a real queen, you know. Oh. I mean, here, and he was a little bit different here in New York than he was in, in Indiana. I'll bet. Yeah, he was. You know, he's, sort of, he's a nice looking guy, he sort of switches around, you know, and uh, looks at all the boys on the street. He's a real, uh, way out, you know. Um, well, you know, people... Uh, Down the street, on 10th and Waverly, a young man, newly arrived in New York City, enters a bar called Julius. It's just a block off Greenwich Avenue, where guys tend to cruise. Danny Garvin is 17. It's clearly his first time in this bar. He doesn't even know Julius is a gay bar when he sits down to chat with a couple of guys. It quickly becomes obvious to him that he's in a gay bar. An older, feminine man approaches their group. He says... I bet you three are servicemen. I can tell fortunes. Let me see your palms. He pretends to study their palms. Well, I'm going to tell you. One of you is homosexual, but I'm not going to tell you which one. I'm going to give all three of you my phone number, and the one that is homosexual will know to call me. <laughs> Danny decides this Greenwich Village bar, Julius, is the bar for him. Previously, On July 4th, 1965, people of the organizations in ECHO come together, totaling 39 members. 15 million homosexual Americans ask for equality, opportunity, dignity. At the 1965 ECHO conference, Frank Kameny speaks before the 200 homophile delegates who traveled from all over the country. Kameny shows off a film to show how successful the pickets have been. There's a standing ovation. Another speaker reminds the homophiles that these are techniques picked up from the civil rights movement and that we should be joining people of color on their picket lines too. It is time that we begin to move from endless talk to firm, vigorous action. Ours is a science-oriented society. In the long run, I do not think it can be seriously doubted that what science says will be important for the success of the homophile movement. Emphasis on research has had its day. 
The vote seemed to represent a clear mandate for our views and a clear defeat for the conservatives, the closet queens, and Corey Sicknicks. It's hard to believe there are so many entrapment victims. Would you like to talk to some? I'm Devlin Camp, and this is the serialized story of queer liberation in America, from the beginning to Stonewall. The Homosexual in America. Time Magazine, January 21st, 1966. Today in the U.S., there are mixed bars where all homosexuals, male and female, are persona grata. Cufflinky bars that cater to the college and junior executive type. Swish bars for effeminates and hair fairies with the careful coiffures. TV bars, which cater not to television fans, but to transvestites. Leather bars for the tough gay types with their fondness for chains and belts. San Francisco's new topless boys discotheques featuring bare-chested entertainers. San Francisco and Los Angeles are rivals for the distinction of being the capital of the gay world. The nod probably goes to San Francisco. Time Magazine's map of the queer world presents a community of people who are not new, they've existed forever, but it does explore a new boldness in these people. A younger generation is filling the bars, standing on a solid foundation built for them over the past 20 years or so. They're more confident in their queerness. The new left is rising, empowered by social revolution, expressed in counterculture. Bras and draft cards will soon be thrown to the fire. Men are growing their hair long, women are wearing blue jeans, the 50s are long gone. The thought of the people in these bars being the future of our country terrifies many of Time Magazine's readers. Fortunately for them, Time will ease their worries by reminding their audience that homosexuality can be cured and that frequenting these queer bars is a, quote, pathetic little second-rate substitute for reality, a pitiable flight from life. As such, it deserves fairness, compassion, understanding, and, when possible, treatment. But it deserves no encouragement, no glamorization, no rationalization, no fake status as minority martyrdom, no sophistry about simple differences in taste, and above all, no pretense that it is anything but a pernicious sickness. Philadelphia's Dr. Samuel Haddon reported last year that he had achieved 12 conversions out of 32 male homosexuals in group therapy. Furious, Kay Tobin writes a piece for the latter in the February 66 issue, since none of the mainstream press will denounce it. The thing that it doesn't happify our own people if they're left to think, well, maybe I am sick. You know, I think of the of the those poor homosexuals all around the country who read that damn Time magazine essay oh, with uh, being told, of course it was foul. Mm-hmm. Uh, we know it is, but do they know it's foul? If they're living in their little cubicles of uh-huh. misery and they don't, uh, they can't they know uh, what's around them. Uh, yes, and they're ju- or they're ju- yeah, just young emerging right. homosexuals who just found themselves and haven't found themselves yet, mm-hmm. and they read this and they're told it's a pernicious sickness. You'd be surprised that the kids in New Jersey, so, so what's going in to happen? who are convinced they're sick. Well, they're going to jump off the Verrazano Bridge or do some other stupid thing. Well, well, let me ask the question right now. 
do you think uh, the position such as taken by Mattachine of Washington uh, that definitely homosexuality is not a sickness? I think that's their position, isn't it? Mm -hmm. No, they um, say in the absence in of the valid absence evidence of to the oh, contrary. Okay, all right, all right. In the absence of, of this mm -hmm. valid um, evidence. Valid evidence. Right. Do you think that this is any more effective toward giving us a hearing, a fair hearing, than a neutral position would be? Yes, they copy, you see, for a reporter thinking in terms of, oh boy, I'll get this psychiatrist going at loggerheads with this homophile group. Mm -hmm. Well, think of it as hot copy rather than, you know, just bland statements. Well, furthermore, I saw Frank going yeah. at it with a psychiatrist on a TV show, and you know, they were like this, and Frank won. Mm -hmm. But, and that makes for good filming sure from the TV station's point of view. But uh, the problem is that when you take a position like that, you also have to have the brains to back it up in public. Yeah, that's true. Well, MSW, of course, uh, also uses this uh, uh, policy statement when they go out uh, to meetings with public officials or mm -hmm. with uh, ministers and so forth. <coughs> and they say that you absolutely have to have a position when you go to the bargaining table. Yeah. That you can't, uh, this, is, this is the way Kameny claims it has to work. You can't come in with a, a neutral position because uh, the other people are coming in with a very definite idea formulated in their heads, which constitutes their position and their attitude. And if you come in with no position and no attitude, mm -hmm. you're already at a disadvantage in what should be an equal dialogue. Yeah, but you see, um, I guess mm -hmm. I'm not getting across too clearly, and it's probably because it's clouded in my own mind. But I think uh, to take a position at all, positive or negative, anything except neutral, is to focus on the problem of sickness. And I should like to see us get away from the problem of sickness pro or con altogether. You know? Now, it's very difficult to do. Some psychiatrists, believing there is a cure for queerness, are practicing shock treatment on their patients. Some are trying aversion-conversion therapy, all of which is incredibly traumatic for the patient. These doctors are encouraged by well-known psychiatrists Irving Bieber and Charles Socorides. They believe that homosexuality is caused by upbringing, a dominant mother and absent father, or some other kind of quote-unquote wrong upbringing. Bieber's book, Homosexuality, a Psychoanalytic Study, is quickly refuted in a series of articles by a doctor writing for the latter. Research through a glass, darkly. The doctor points out that Bieber's entire study lacks the use of the scientific method. The heterosexual's place in society is not usually determined by what he does in the privacy of his bedroom. I regard homosexuality or homosexual love personally as a higher form of love than heterosexual love. No, uh, no, no, seriously, you know, very seriously, I think, speaking again personally and I guess mainly as a lesbian, it is much more beneficial to me and much more, I, I communicate much more easily sexually and every other way with a woman that I do with a man. Therefore, to me, a woman that I am dating and I uh, reach a closer kind of unity than a man and I ever could. And for this reason, to me, it is a higher form of love because after all, the whole object of love is to reach a kind of unified state. And homosexual, uh, homosexual love enables you to do this, in, in essence. So you would have no relationship to decadence? No, I, I, I think on the contrary, you know, it's the other way around, you know. 
it's a higher form, you know. It's Has anybody ever challenged you by saying, well, why, what makes you think that your love <laughs> brings better unity than the heterosexual thinks his love brings unity? <laughs> We've had heterosexuals yeah. argue with us that their way is much more fulfilling. <laughs> well, the only thing I can say to that is I've known heterosexual love, and all I can speak from it is experience, you know. And to me, comparing the two, <laughs> I find the one more preferable than the other. You know? Oh, but every man speak for himself. But you're saying this is for, for your own experience, not that you think homosexual love in itself as an entity is better than heterosexual. Uh, I'm saying potentially it is. Uh-huh. Uh, I think any two people of the same sex have by their very nature, the very fact that they're both of the same sex, a greater potentiality to reach this kind of rapport than, than the people who are two separate entities in a sense trying to get together. Two different yeah. things. Uh -huh brings up a, a point that I think I'd like to make on this tape, right. and that is, I think there's a tendency in homosexual relationships to mimic heterosexual relationships, and I think uh, that eventually we are going to have to begin to form our own separate image in our relationships and not to copy heterosexual relationships. No, I just think that the two types of relationships are so different. The whole reason that so much social sanction is given to heterosexual relationships, I think, is because of the family. And when you have two people who don't have a family, mm -hmm. then I think they can begin to think in other terms. I haven't defined for myself yet what these other terms are. Uh -huh. But I'd like for, for us to get away from this whole frame of reference of being uh, the same ki having the same kind of relationships, you know, the husband, the wife, this sort of thing, you know, as, as heterosexual. I think. Homosexual relationships can be very creative, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. What would you demand as creativity? I didn't yeah. work very creative. We worked very <laughs> hard together <laughs> on one project. You're very fine. But in You're what? not taking tranquilizers. <laughs> but in what sense would you mean it? Well, um, I think people who are freed from family responsibilities can begin to take more responsibilities uh, towards society toward being more productive mm -hmm. than ordinary people. And I don't mean all homosexuals should be artists, but I think people who are not confined to uh, children, or to bringing up children, can feel more liberty mm. to, to give more of themselves to the outside world. That's, uh, that's very theoretical and very general, but that's all I can say at this point. And I think, I think it's a, a good thing not to, not to be tied down with the family. You know? Because mm -hmm. then you can, you can explore yourself more, which is very important. Barbara Giddings, Kay Tobin, and Frank Kameny pack their bags into a car together. With the press and doctors discussing homosexuals so frequently as sick people, actions like the pickets have begun to seem pointless to the Washington Mattachinos. Just a bunch of sick queers carrying signs. As their relatively secret spaces, the bars, become known in mainstream media, they become targeted more frequently by government officials, the press, and run-of-the-mill homophobes. In February 1966, 14 of the homophile organization's leaders meet in Kansas City for the National Planning Conference of Homophile Organizations. 
They chose Kansas City because it's inconvenient for everyone. No home field advantage. Well, it would be interesting to see all the ideas put forward in the clashes over. <laughs> oh, I wish God, we're not you the could be there. I really do because, <laughs> yeah, as I, I told Ernestine, to you think you you folks are, are lacking in experience and background in the movement. You'd get a better dose you, of it in two days in Kansas City I know than that. you would I'm in two years. Yeah, you're right. I understand. There's still a space in the car if you'd like to take it. <laughs> 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 Barbara, Kay, and Frank arrive together. Mattachine of Washington pushes for an official statement against the theory that they're all sick. They want the statement signed off on by this mass gathering of 40 gay organizational leaders. But the group tables the idea, noting their official position. Professional opinion is in complete disagreement as to the cause and nature of homosexuality. These gay leaders discuss many other topics, though, including the idea of turning their alliance of many homophile organizations into just one major homophile organization together. Dell and Phyllis are against this idea, as when this happens, men tend to take over the conversation and push women out. Some folks here are literally calling Frank Kameny the homophile Caesar. Another leader fears that if they don't centralize, the movement will be taken over by the fringe elements, beatniks, and other professional nonconformists, he says. They compromise and come to an agreement to form a unified group of organizations, an alliance like the East Coast Echo Group, but called the North American Conference of Homophile Organizations, or NACHO, NACO. Under NACO, Phyllis Lyon from DOB suggests they plan a picket on Armed Forces Day to protest the exclusion of homosexuals from the military. Some folks in NACO see this push for military acceptance as antiquated and assimilationist. Agreed. But being perceived by the general public as patriots could help their cause. During the meeting, Jack Nichols passes a large postcard around the conference room asking homophile leaders from all over the country to sign it in an effort to show Lige he's thinking about him back home and not just focused on movement this and movement that. Lige is not impressed. They break up. Lige needs time away from Jack, who is still calling Lige Bobby, his homophile pseudonym. Jack still has issues with being emotionally intimate. Bitter with Lige, Jack starts dating a guy named Julio who barely speaks any English, it's very clear to Lige that Jack has no intention of facing real intimacy. He's not even making an effort to learn Spanish. Frank writes to Bob Martin, his romantic interest, a Columbia student and new activist. Frank tells Bob about the big homophile meeting. He writes that they were given the red carpet treatment at Indiana University on their drive back home. Frank, Barbara, and Kay were invited as special guests at the Kinsey Institute. Afterward, they hit the local bar. The gay patrons in this Indiana town are fascinated by Frank's buttons on his jacket, given to him by Randy Wicker. One is a lavender equal sign. The other says, equality for homosexuals. Frank gives it to the bartender to display on the wall. Dear Mother, you say that you wish that I had discussed this with you earlier when something might have been done. This overlooks two important facts. One, nothing could have been done at any time. 
regardless of the misguided information which might have been given to you by some psychiatrist. Two, you completely omit consideration of whether I would have wanted something to be done. Now, this is not the tragedy which folklore makes of it and which folklore you have accepted hook, line, and sinker. My life through this has been fascinating, exciting, varied, stimulating, interesting, full in every good sense in a way that it would and could never otherwise have been. I have good and close friends everywhere in greater number than I think you can imagine. I would not change for all the money in the world. You need have no sense of guilt. I don't think that you made me as I am in this context. I see nothing to blame about you if you did. You also made me a human and sensitive person, one with a brilliant and trained mind, one with an extraordinary personality in every good sense, and many other things. If some of these characterizations of myself seem to you not to be the Franklin you know, remember also that I have been telling you for almost 30 years that you have never seen the real me. Again, you need feel neither guilt nor grief. If you did make me as I am, I thank you for it. With much love, Franklin. Back in New York, Danny returns to his favorite bar, Julius. He orders a beer and turns around to lean against the bar and see who comes in. He takes a sip. There's a tap on his shoulder. Uh, turn around and face the bar, please. Really? Why? Danny looks down the bar. All the patrons are facing the bar. Cops come in and see people looking at the door, and they know they're cruising. We'll get shut down on solicitation charges. What do cops think straight people are in bars for? After meeting with Dick Leisch in the Mattachine offices, The Post runs their series of articles on vice cops entrapping gay men. But the abuse of power doesn't stop. The new mayor, Lindsay, orders a crackdown on Times Square. He wants police to rid the area of... Honky-tonks, promenading perverts, homosexuals, and prostitutes. The cops take on this mission, and then they bring it to Greenwich Village. Chief Inspector Sanford Gerlich leads a campaign against drugs, congestion, and homosexuals down McDougal Street. He orders police to seal off 14 blocks where young people typically gather on a Friday night. Fed up with police actions like this, about 1,500 young folks sit down in the street, clapping and chanting, up with the village and down with the police. Humiliated after half an hour of this, the inspector Gerlich opens the blockades and allows cars back onto the street. Residents and the press mock the cops for days to come. The mayor's administration holds a meeting at Judson Memorial Church in the village to discuss what needs to be done about neighborhood congestion. Present for the meeting are Chief Inspector Sanford Gerlich, Police Commissioner Howard Leary, and Human Rights Commissioner William Booth. Inside the church, villagers shout at the officials in chaotic anger. Then, from the back of the chapel... I'm from a minority group in the community that is rarely heard from. I represent the Homosexual League of New York. 
Randy Wicker. Why aren't private non-racketeer businessmen allowed the legal right to run restaurants for homosexuals just as they run restaurants for heterosexuals? We have to enforce the law on licensed premises. You say repression, I say enforcement. Are sexual deviates supposed not to eat? And what about those plain clothesmen whose psychology even the homosexual doesn't understand, who come into places dressed in tight pants to lure people into illicit acts? Entrapment is a violation of our rules and a violation of our procedure. Plainclothes officers solicit homosexuals in the bars daily. That is unlikely. The NYCLU executive director stands and hustles up to the podium. He says, Officer Gerlich is showing a certain naivete in denying what this young man is saying. It's alarming to think that the chief inspector doesn't know that a large number of police spend their duty hours dressed in tight pants, sneakers, and polo sweaters to bring about solicitations. The audience stands and cheers, yelling, bravo! Dick Leish sits back in his pew, watching his well-placed matachinos throughout the church meeting stand up and confront the chief. His plan is working. Yeah, this kind of thing. Uh -huh. But nobody will be killed. We're, we're more civilized than that now. We're progressive. Do you think that 
Okay, well, I won't put this on the table. We've got one martyr, but nobody pays any attention to it. Are we? Well, I think Frank is a martyr. I do too, in a sense. He, he lost can't his find job. a job. Frank lost his job? Yeah. Well, I don't know that. Because yeah, of his associate, because of his job. work for the, oh, he's been out of work I for mean, a year, quite nearly a year. Yeah. How does he get along? Yeah, I do too. He, I've, I've always, uh, uh, he's just had a very big amount loan of money from somebody else. Oh, really? How, where was he working? At a university or something? No. He had a job in private industry. Oh, originally. Well, I know he was an astronomer. That's why I wonder. Yeah. Originally, he worked for the government, mm -hmm. and the government pushed him out, and he. They took found his out case. he was homosexual. Yes, mm -hmm. and he took his case to the Supreme Court, even writing his own brief, which is a magnificent oh document to gosh. read. I never knew that. And uh, he's brilliant, that man. The yeah, brain I know he's brilliant. Yeah. I know. And he wrote his own brief for the court. The court, however, didn't hear the case. That doesn't mean they adjudged it. They just didn't, didn't hear it. schedule it for the calendar. They can only pick a small proportion. Right. Yeah. And they didn't choose to hear it. Now, that was maybe six, seven, eight years ago, wasn't it? Mm -hmm. Then he was in private industry. Mm -hmm. And there was a kind of a, uh, a gentleman's agreement he had with his employers uh, in that <coughs> uh, they, they were able to pay him a lesser salary than they might have had to pay him mm -hmm. with the knowledge of his Mattachine affiliations and his activities. Mm -hmm. And he uh, supposed himself safe, but then something came up. He was on a, a television show, I think. Well, this is only Some, it's speculation. He got let off. They said it was a cutback in work. Mm -hmm. Well, we don't quite but know. But the thing is, he hasn't been able it. to find another job because, in, you know, his field is limited. And mm -hmm. one personnel manager tells another, and, and he wants to be able to go on television and so forth. And, mm -hmm. uh, yeah, he wants out. to be. What does he do specifically? He's an astronomer and a physicist. But this is exactly what I mean. This is a classical example of our new martyr. Should we, really should we glamorize our martyrs and put them up? <laughs> when Dick Leish gets home, the night after the town hall at Judson Memorial, an Episcopal priest calls, a heterosexual, calling because he's just been arrested by a plainclothes officer, just a few blocks from that church meeting, at a gay bar, called Julius. Dick Leish immediately begins calling all the papers before they go to press with tomorrow's headlines. April 2nd, 1966, The New York Times. Gerlich urges public to report trappings of homosexuals. Though this headline makes Inspector Gerlich look like the hero, the article right next to it tells the story of the heterosexual priest's arrest at Julius. Back in the Mattachine offices, Dick Leish strategizes their next move. The public is becoming much more aware that gay people exist, that they have their own bars, and that police come in to arrest gays and shut down those bars. How do we stop police from being allowed to arrest gay people, at least inside the bars? The Mattachine hires an attorney to dig through the New York alcohol beverage control laws. The attorney reports back. Contrary to the contention of many bar operators, there is no provision in New York which flatly prohibits homosexuals from gathering in bars, and there is no provision which flatly prohibits bars from serving homosexuals. But, the attorney adds, that it does say bars can't become disorderly. The lawmakers interpret disorderly however they want, perhaps as a place full of homosexuals, because homos are probably all on the brink of sodomy in there. So if the bar is full of gays, it can be closed on this vague notion 
of disorder. If you heard season two, this is a tale as old as time. The Mattachine determines that they need to get the state liquor authority to define disorderly. Get it on the record. And the best way to get the state to act on this is to force them to look at it. Are there any ways in which you think our movement could emulate the Negro or other movements uh, which it's uh, not doing right now? Uh, I don't find in the homophile movement enough stress on courtroom action. That is, I can't envision at this point President Johnson uh, coming out in favor of a bill for homosexual rights mm -hmm. to work in government today. I mm. think, I can't even envision um, there being any kind of bill comparable to the 1954 education bill. Uh, I would like to see more test cases in court so this thing can be brought out in the open. I think that's one of the ways of gaining, gaining exposure you know, in, a, in a legitimate setting, kind of. You know, one that's a completely acceptable to everybody. Yeah. yeah. And I think the more we have of this, I think we have very little of it now, as far as I know. Well, Frank took his case as high as he could take it, which was to, to the court below the Supreme Court. Mm -hmm. Then Bruce Scott. Uh, took the <coughs> case up to just below the Supreme Court, and mm -hmm. then um, he won. Then the government has made a new charge against him, and he has to start all the way up through the courts. So this mm -hmm. is one court case that's going now. Schlegel, is his case going? I don't know about I'm Schlegel's sure case, about but the Bruce Scott case uh, is in a way terribly discouraging because it shows the, the tenacity of the government. Yes, it does. It, right. They're being so tenacious, and it takes a hell of a lot, not only of courage, but of money mm -hmm. uh, to keep Bruce Scott's case going, even even with the ACLU back. Now, Frank said he would start yeah. his mm -hmm. case up all over again because mm -hmm. of Bruce Scott's uh, winning, mm -hmm. but he can't afford to, and uh, there isn't enough money in the movement or enough desire to sponsor that case right. again. In fact, I guess that is a problem, money, yeah. uh, that and, and having people who will be willing to go to court. But what about charges from uh, the heterosexuals that, be, that, that this makes a procuring agency for, for illegal sex? What yeah. about this? Well, the only thing I can say to that is uh, what I already said before. I think we have to decide how far we can go for caring about what heterosexuals think. You know, And we want acceptance, and we want our rights as citizens and as people. But this doesn't mean that all of our activity and all of our goals are defined by other people's filthy minds. Okay, we'll be right back following this message. Want to hear more from Ernestine Eppinger, a.k.a. Ernestine Eckstein? I'm sure it doesn't surprise you that we're taking a closer look at Ernestine on my Patreon this week. We find our closest friends are homosexual. Mm -hmm. Do you? But, no, I don't. Um, I wish it were true. You know, I would like to be able to... Well, for me, it's always reaching toward a complete communication with people. 
you know. So I would like to be able to communicate, say, with a Negro lesbian. Yeah. This would be a perfect situation so far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I found that the girls in DOB who are mainly the homosexuals that I know are not the ones that I would seek out necessarily mm -hmm. to be my close friends. Check out patreon.com slash queer serial for more archival recordings and closer looks at LGBTQ history featured on Queer Serial. You can hear gay and trans folks on the radio in the 50s and 60s, spin-off episodes, new interviews with activists, and the infamous Crimes Limited series, eight episodes about a 1950s sex panic in Boise, Idaho. My Patreon has all sorts of other stuff, too, besides the bonus podcast, including research dives and books, buttons, and mugs sent to you. The bonus podcast is $3 a month and only when there's new episodes. Check it all out at patreon.com slash queer serial. There's a link in the episode notes. April 21st. 1966. Reporters gather outside a Ukrainian-American village restaurant. Like many establishments in large cities, this restaurant has a handwritten sign saying, If you are gay, please go away. A press release sent yesterday by the Mattachine Society of New York told every paper in the city that a demonstration will be held today in this restaurant at noon. It's now noon, and no homosexuals have made themselves known. One of the reporters goes inside and checks with the manager to see what he thinks about the expected demonstration. He had no idea it was coming. He asks the reporter and his customers to leave, and he closes up shop for the day. Ten minutes late, Dick Leish and John Timmons arrive, representing the Mattachine Society. Kentucky-born Dick Leish, 21, president of the society, explains that Mattachine refers to the masked Italian court jesters of the 16th century who were the only people allowed to speak the truth to the king. He's conservatively dressed in a well-cut gray suit with narrow blue stripes and a light blue shirt. With a black attache case in hand, he is the picture of a Madison Avenue executive. Dick's friend, John, insisted on also inviting Craig Rodwell, even though Craig quit the Mattachine because they didn't support his progressive ideas, such as a storefront, combination bookstore, and counseling service for the community. Put a pin in that. And of course, because he wants the support of another radical, Craig Rodwell invited Randy Wicker, PR queen. Dick Leish is already annoyed that Randy stood up at the church event saying he represented his own Homosexual League of New York, rather than saying the Mattachine, for which he is secretary. By the time the four of them arrive for the demonstration at the restaurant, it's closed. The reporters are standing out on the sidewalk, wondering if they should stick around. Let's try the bar across the street, the dump. Also closed. It's about a ten minute walk to Howard Johnson's on 6th and 8th. Let's try there. It doesn't matter exactly where they go, as long as they go into an establishment, announce that they're homosexuals, and they are refused service. Modeled on the civil rights movement's sit-ins, once the four activists are refused a drink, they plan to file a complaint against the state liquor authority for forcing bars to follow a vague policy. A policy that goes against a specific minority group's constitutional rights to free assembly and equal accommodation. And the Mattachinos brought reporters and photographers to get it all on camera for the papers, including the New York Times. 
They've got to get this right today. Howard Johnson's is a good spot to make it happen, because some street queens who need a decent meal often go there to, as they say, eat and tip out the door, a dine and dash. This restaurant is likely to shut the homosexuals down. It's not unheard of. At the table, the men order drinks, and Dick Leish reads a statement to the waitress. We are homosexuals. We believe that a place of public accommodation has an obligation to serve an orderly person, and that we are entitled to service as long as we are orderly. The manager cracks up. <laughs> Bring over some bourbon for these nicely dressed men. Why shouldn't they be served a drink? They look perfect and gentlemen to me. The Mattachinos down their drinks, pay, and look for a new location. It's pretty ridiculous that anybody should determine what anybody's sex life is. I think there's plenty of lawmakers whose sex life I could challenge, and they drink too. We agree. Thank you, sir. How about the Waikiki on 6th? We are homosexuals. We believe that a place of public accommodation has an obligation to serve in... How do I know you're homosexuals? Give these guys a drink on us. I'm starting to feel drunk. We better get this done already. I guess we give up. A reporter leans in. You can't give up. You gotta make your point. At this point, the reporters probably want to get their story. Well, even a priest was arrested at Julius last week. They definitely won't serve us. It's not far. They threw me out just for wearing a button that said equality for homosexuals. The four men enter Julius, reporters following behind them. It's fairly busy, and the bartender, in a tie and a light cardigan, turns to them. We are homosexuals, and we would like a drink. We believe that a place of public accommodation has an obligation. Just have a seat and face the bar. He points at the sign. Patrons must face the bar while drinking. We are homosexuals, and we would like a drink. I don't know what you're trying to prove. But a man was arrested by a plainclothes cop here last night, so our license is in hot water as it is. Face the bar and drink. It's a closet queen bar, Dick. They don't want the press. Excuse me, can I have a word? Dick takes the bartender aside. Refusing a service might actually help you out with your license issue. I represent the Mattachine Society of New York. If you don't serve us, you'll be following the law, and the Mattachine will get your bar legal assistance when we fight the state liquor authority. Dick returns to the bar with the activists, and the bartender takes his place behind the counter and pours the men a drink. We are homosexuals. The bartender puts his hand over the glass. I can't serve you. Why can't you? I think it's the law. The Mattachine Society of New York will be filing a complaint with the state liquor authority. on the part of homosexuals who are impatient to have their rights now and not simply wait for the slow process of filling. We're just throwing this out to see how, yeah, how yeah, you react to it as one um, who's in an, another minority situation. Well, speaking for a moment of the other minority, the Negro minority, um, I, feel, I find it very difficult to wait as a Negro. Yeah. I think, though, in the homophile movement, you have a different kind of situation. I don't think you have any choice but to wait. That is, I think we cannot be as radical as homosexuals 
as we can, as we could, and as we do, as Negroes. Because the Negro cause is already widely accepted, right. you know, and, you know, the right of a man to vote and to work and to go to school, regardless of his color. The homosexual cause is not yet accepted. Mm -hmm. And I think this has to come first, the acceptance. Then you can push as far and as, as often and as hard as you like. Three deviates invite exclusion by bars. The next day, the New York Times tells the story of the Sipen. Two weeks later, the Village Voice prints their story, along with Fred McDera's famous photograph of the bartender's hand over the glass during the Sipen at Julius, which you can see on my Instagram at Queer Serial. A few days after the event, the State Liquor Authority tells the press they would take no action against bartenders or liquor licensees who refuse to serve drinks to homosexuals. What about the complaint from the Mattachine Society stating that the state is denying homosexuals their constitutional right to assembly? We would take no action on such a complaint. This might be a matter for the Commission on Human Rights. Human Rights Commissioner William Booth, who was at the village church meeting, tells the Times, We have jurisdiction over discrimination based on sex. Denial of bar service to a homosexual solely for that reason would come within those bounds. The State Liquor Authority is attempting to slip out of the Sipin's trap by having the city say it's only legal for the city to investigate discrimination based on sex. If a bar refuses to serve gays, there's nothing the city can do about it. The same argument will one day be made for wedding cakes. So the State Liquor Authority decides to clarify their bigotry a little more. Gays can gather and be served, the state says, but the bar must not become disorderly. Again, vague, but they say disorderly means gays can't touch, kiss, or dance, like heterosexuals do in their bars. The Sippin' brings widespread attention to the issue, but the state continues to wiggle their way out of responsibility. April 26th, 1966. SLA won't act against bars refusing service to deviates. It's this sort of two-steps-forward, one-step-back type of activism that many homophiles are becoming impatient with. Like the New York State Liquor Authority not taking any action against bars refusing to serve queers. The SIPIN has highlighted the problem, made it a huge point of conversation, but it hasn't solved the problem. That said, it's better than doing nothing. At the Daughters of Belitis, their own founders, Dell and Phyllis, are still frustrated with the organization's frequent discouragement of actions like sip-ins and pickets. I have carefully considered my actions and my decisions in participating in the Belitis Council. The time is now, and I am committed. There is no time to wait for the machinery of DOB to gear itself into action. In May, homophile organizations across the nation, from Philly to L.A., ready their Armed Forces Day signs to protest the exclusion of gays from the military. On May 21st, 1966, Washington's Mattachine marches from the White House to the Pentagon. 300 San Franciscan homophiles say the Pledge of Allegiance outside their federal building, yikes, while Los Angeles puts on the first gay motorcade for their protest, 13 cars with signs. Don Slater of L.A. writes to Frank Kameny, that their city will not enforce the uptight dress code, that the general public will have to accept that homosexuals are both the bizarre and the ordinary. The next month, June 66, 
DOB co-founder Del Martin writes to current president Shirley Willer and her partner, Marion Glass. DOB here offered little support to the Council on Religion and the Homosexuals' Candidates' Night, or to the protest day. As a consequence, Phyllis and I find ourselves moving in a direction that no longer encompasses DOB, and we have become more involved with CRH and Citizens Alert. This is an era of change, and both of these organizations represent action and change. We wish to be helpful to you, but cannot see our way clear to continued involvement with the SF chapter. We would prefer to remain inactive members. Well, how far have you got, uh, um, this is maybe not something I can use, but I'm interested, mm-hmm. how far have you got uh, in uh, working in the movement with the ideas that you have, such as that homosexuals should be courageous enough to declare themselves and live the way they want to live? Mm-hmm. Um, how have your ideas been received? <laughs> <laughs> you thought of as a radical among lesbians? <laughs> well. <laughs> not to say DOV. We won't say that. Oh, you're not talking about DOV. No, no. no, no. Are you thought of as a radical among lesbians? We'll just, just keep it uh, general. <laughs> and talk also of people in the movement because you uh-huh. certainly have contact with others outside well. DOV. <laughs> That's really a very hard question to answer. I personally consider myself uh, very average and normal in every sense of the word. Not radical, but just simply. um, This to me is the way to be. Now, I think compared to other lesbians, my ideas are farther to the left than theirs are. You mean in terms of personal behavior now? In terms of personal behavior. How about in terms of tactics for movement? I, I also think this is true in terms of tactics. Most lesbians that I know endorse picketing, but would not themselves picket. Mm-hmm. Uh, so as far as ideas are concerned, maybe we're on the same line. Yeah. But, but I sort of go a little bit beyond it in that I will get on the picket line in a different city. But you you might be on television, of course. You're not worried about that? No, I'm not worried about I think eventually this philosophy of mine will reach a point that I will decide that it's my right to pick it, you know, whatever the cause, if 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 it's my cause. And this will eventually be my position. It's not yet. I haven't that much courage yet. You mean no matter what your job is? Yeah, no matter what the job is. Right, right. This will eventually, I think uh, this philosophy is evolving, but it hasn't quite got there yet. But in a sense, I think it's the same kind of pattern, though. The homosexual has to call attention to the fact that he's being unjustly acted upon. And this is what the Negro did, in a sense. And I I think this is the kind of educational process that we have to go through now. Picketing, I I regard as very almost a conservative activity now. Agree to, <laughs> if you would agree to a front cover, you need this a is what iPod. we would have used on the back cover. Oh.
Ernestine does agree to be on the cover of the latter, a bold move in 1966. They discuss how to safely publish her image. Well, listen, Ernestine, we don't, uh, we're not entirely down on this idea of the picture yet. I have mm -hmm. a feeling there might be a way of taking a picture of you for the cover mm -hmm. that would not imply that your features are being concealed, but that nonetheless would have this effect. Any way you can do it. Example. There are Look. several ways. Well, well that, this isn't so good, but you can blur somebody oh, yeah. going along on a motor scooter. As long as my supervisor in the office could now look at this and say, now, Ernestine, I recognize <coughs> your eyes in that, you know, uh, I don't do you care. ever do your well, hair differently? Look, here's a shot. Here's a shot down, like and here's a shot up. But well, that makes you, you look rather different. Yeah, it does. So that's one possibility. There's a shot down. There's a shot up. And okay. Both of those would help. Is here Ernestine's picture? That's one real possibility. That's change your hairdo. But if you have a picture like for us to give us a try on the oh, picture, course. we'll, we'll bring them when we next come to New York, and yeah. uh, we'll try some shots. Now we'll take about two or three rolls of film. Right. Which means it might be one picture. Okay. All right. so we never show a picture unless someone signs a release. So, yeah, well, <laughs> so right. obviously she's willing to see. Yeah, a picture yeah, of a girl yeah. like this that's a half face that uh -huh. we're going to be using sometimes. Soon. The only thing I objected to that after I had it was that it might apply half a woman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They finish up the interview with one final big question. When you said you thought the leader should concentrate less on the personal problems of the membership, uh, what did you mean as opposed to that? That they should concentrate on helping the minority as opposed to the individual? Um, let's see, I don't remember the context in which I said that, but my feeling generally is that there are certain broad general problems that we all have as homosexuals, you know, across the board, mm -hmm. so to speak. And we should concentrate on those, the draft, uh, civil service employment, um, the church rejection of us, this kind of thing that, that touches us all and not necessarily the, the question, maybe even the question of, of uh, transvestites. Uh, I think this has been neglected. But this kind of thing, you know, that, it, that in, a, in a very broad sense. The state laws. Uh, state laws, yeah. Anything that, that can affect us all rather than things that affect a particular segment of the homosexual community or a smaller segment than the transvestites say. Well, I'm surprised you threw that in, the transvestites. You mean yeah. that we should uh, think about their right to dress as they please without discrimination? Or You see, I, I feel, as I, I think I explained before when we were here, uh, that the homophile movement is only part of a, a much larger movement of the erasure of labels. And I think the right of a person to dress as he chooses must necessarily follow when we expand our own philosophy of, of, uh, uh, of bringing about change for the homosexual. And I think once we get this, there'll be a broader thing to think about. And when we get to that point, if we ever do, it will mean that people can dress as they like and there'll be no stigma attached to it. But they won't be hired by U.S. Steel to go out and sell steel, <laughs> for example. Well, projecting pretty far into the future, I don't see why not. Maybe they might. Then. You know, uh -huh. but that, that again, pretty far in the future. Where is that tape? This thing's falling over. Oh well, grabbing it. It's, well, it's, 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 it's not tape right up there. It's all I want. This is not tape only.
Yes, but it was falling over like this. Oh, I want to keep it from falling over oh, by having you, another piece. May I just have a piece? It's right up there, honey. Okay, thanks. I didn't know you leave my hand over there. We know a lot of transvestites and they're heterosexual. Mm -hmm. That's why I would say that that is not a homosexual problem. Um, there's so many of them, you know, they have two organizations of their mm -hmm. own. And they're really a vast, vast number of people just don't realize how many heterosexual men would like to let go and be feminine mm -hmm. in this way. Yeah, well, I'm not saying it's exclusively a homosexual problem, but I am saying it's a problem of sexual identity, you know. Mm -hmm. And so far as society is concerned, the two are lumped together. Yeah, that's And therefore, true. once we solve ours, I see no reason why we cannot begin to expand mm -hmm. into other areas. And, and, and this one is so closely allied to our own. Do you think he'll still be around when that time Oh, uh, no, no, I don't think he'll be in my lifetime, no, no, we're projecting. <laughs> I'm being a social prophet, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, it, it's the goal, I think, to work for. Hmm. I think we have a very liberal attitude toward dress now. This is so good, we'll probably have to break it up into two issues. We have more than enough material here for an interview. I don't see how we could condense this. Not even as a half an issue. And Roz will love it. You said it. I'll be so glad when I meet her. Oh, you'll well, like her very much. Back inside the Daughters of Belitis, many members are increasingly frustrated with the editors of their magazine. Barbara Giddings is allowing more men to write for the latter, like Frank Kameny. Some readers want the writing to focus solely on women's issues, not gay issues in general. And multiple page letters from readers are sent to the DOB board complaining. Barbara and Kay are also dedicating so much time to picketing and other demonstrations that some latter issues aren't being put together on time. Barbara and Kay will be let go from the latter, and they'll turn to focus solely on the radical work with Frank Kameny in Washington. The day after the Armed Forces Day protest, Kameny packs for a trip to New York to speak at a rally for Ernestine Eckstein's DOB chapter. He wants to speak about militant actions. Frank predicts that if government agencies don't start listening to actions like the SIPN, there may soon be... Popular demonstrations by the homosexual community at large, which will be far less responsible, controlled, and orderly. Do you believe in forms of civil disobedience for our movement at this time or in the future? Uh, as I sort of touched on earlier, I think the homophile movement is not yet ready for any kind of civil disobedience. I think that would just sort of solidify the, all, all the resistance that is already there. You know, so I you think, think picketing as far as I think picketing as as should be the, the extent of it so far. Mm -hmm. I think it will change eventually, but not now. Meanwhile, Randy Wicker slowly departs from the Mattachine Society of New York, too, as he makes profits from selling gay buttons. He opens a radical button shop called Underground Uplift Unlimited. His political buttons are always a hit at parties. They say things like, fornication is fun, and Batman loves Robin. He sells thousands of these. People want to stand out against conformity. Similarly, 
Craig Rodwell works on Fire Island to save up for his dream of a gay storefront, a bookstore for the gay community. Bars in other states begin to get in touch with Mattachine of New York to fight their own state's laws. With Mattachine's help on the case, the New Jersey Supreme Court rules that well-behaved homosexuals can't be denied service, writing, In our culture, homosexuals are indeed unfortunates. Their status does not make them criminals or outlaws. While New York State still refuses to make bar owners serve openly gay citizens, letters flood Mayor Lindsay's office. Around this time, an off-duty transit officer shoots and kills two gay men cruising the waterfront one night, and the officer is not indicted by the grand jury. Homosexuals can clearly see that their city will not willingly protect them. Homosexuals in New York City may no longer have to fear being entrapped by plainclothes men if the police department keeps its recent promise to end the practice of entrapment. The latter very optimistically reports in June 1966. A few months after the sip-in, Barbara and Kay's interview with Ernestine Eckstein in the latter hits the stands. It's eight pages long, running right before their story on Dick Leish and entrapment. The issue features Ernestine on the cover. She's wearing her fur collar coat and smiling in profile. Of course, you can see this right now on my Instagram. By now, June of 66, Ernestine is no longer vice president of the Belitis New York chapter. Perhaps she stepped down because the group is so conservative, as she touched on in the interview. When she invited Frank Kameny to speak for the chapter, they overruled and she had to disinvite Frank. Soon, Ernestine will quit the daughters altogether and move across the country to the Bay Area to join the black women organized for action. There are tough fights she's much more willing to wage than the slow-moving homophiles are. Ernestine needs to take action. She feels the temperature rising. Everyone does. In two months, another battle in San Francisco will send the police running into the streets of the Tenderloin. No city is safe. As queers become more open, the crackdowns become more intense. Months ago, the New York Post ran a five-part series of articles about the Vice Squad, highlighting the tactics police use to lure citizens into making illegal solicitations so that the officers can then arrest them to meet Vice Squad quotas. Still, entrapment continued. And so did the disavowals by police officials. Under pressure, Mayor Lindsay invites representatives from the village to a private meeting about the city's cleanup attempts. Dick Leish brings up entrapment. The mayor denounces police entrapping homosexuals and orders a directive for plainclothes officers not to entice homosexuals into illicit overtures. If arrests are to be made, a civilian witness should be present, he says. But it remains to be seen whether the New York police are only making public relations noises for the moment and whether entrapment will be resumed. The police now technically can't entrap homosexuals or use entrapment arrests to shut down a gay bar. But ah, a tale as old as time. Police are told they can't do something, so they find a way around the rule. As Mattachine continues to report several cases of officers 
blackmailing, shaking down, and beating gay citizens, it's clear to the city that being queer is still grounds for other types of police action. It's basically still illegal to be gay. And when there's something illegal that a lot of people want to do, establishments are quickly thrown together by the mafia. And the spaces they create are not at all safe. Nationwide ring preying on prominent deviates. Eminent educators, including at least two deans of Eastern universities, prominent theatrical personalities, and officers of the armed services, all homosexual, have been the victims of an extortion ring that has operated throughout the nation for nearly 10 years. Next week, episode 7, Street Power. I'm being a social prophet, but... Uh, yeah. Yeah. right. It's the goal, I think, to work for. Ernestine Eckstein died in 1992 in San Pablo, California. To learn more about her, check out Marcia Gallo's book, Different Daughters, and listen to Ernestine's episode of Making Gay History. There's a link to these in the episode notes. The audio of Eckstein, Lehusen, and Giddings is used courtesy of the New York Public Library's Manuscripts and Archives Division. Well, the only thing I can say about ministers, and this is a very prejudiced view, <laughs> is that they, they tend to keep their heads stuck in the sand. You know, <laughs> and they very rarely come up for any kind of air. <laughs> Julius is one of the oldest bars in New York City, still running today, established probably in the 1860s. Fats Waller and Billie Holiday performed there. Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote drank there. It was a speakeasy during Prohibition. You can also see Julius in several movies, including recently Can You Ever Forgive Me, about lesbian author and literary forger Lee Israel. Julius is also in the new Boys in the Band remake and The Normal Heart. If you visit Julius, and you definitely should, try to visit during one of John Cameron Mitchell's Mattachine parties. They are so much fun. Thanks so much for listening. If you're enjoying Queer Serial, please give her a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts to help boost the show to some more listeners. You can also follow the show at Queer Serial on Instagram to see the real events and people from every episode. This week, I'll be posting plenty of photos of Ernestine Eckstein and the Sippin'. And subscribe to periodic email updates for all things Queer Serial at the link in the episode notes. Thanks to everyone who has donated to support production of the podcast and upcoming projects in the future. If you want to support the show, you can join my Patreon at patreon.com slash queercereal for lots of bonus content, or you can head over to queercereal.com slash donate. Thanks to everyone at the One Archives, the GLBT Historical Society, and the Gerber Hart Library and Archives. Check out queercereal.com for more resources. Teachers, feel free to DM me on any social media or email me at queercereal at gmail.com for transcripts of the episodes. Voice actors. The New York Times reporter in the mini-episode last week was played by my star actress, Faye Camp. We have matching tattoos. Barbara Giddings was played by Clarissa Janelle, Kay Tobin by Katie Spleet, Danny Garvin by Gage Kyle, Time Reporter by Adrian Barker, Dr. Fluke Heiger and Sanford Garelick by Steve Camp, Julius Bartender by Joey Kane, Mayor Lindsay by John Roth. Honky Tonks, Promenading Perverts, Homosexuals, and Prostitutes. Got it! Got it! Dick Leish by Evan Kepnick. 
Craig Rodwell by Sean Calusa, Randy Wicker by Eddie Miller, John Timmons by Dan Unser, Another New York Times reporter by Garrett Williams, Lucy Commissar by Lucy Jones, Howard Johnson's manager by Mike Lysak, Waikiki waiter by Mike Kanish, SLA chairman Hostetter by Julian Hall, Human Rights Commissioner William Booth by Brian Rowe, Del Martin by Salvio Gatto, and Frank Kameny by Albert Williams. As he makes profits selling gay buttons. <laughs> Found his balance. <laughs> and Craig works on Fire Island to save up for his dream of the bookstore. I love this. It's so wonderful. <laughs> it the great? fabulous podcast art is by Ryan Teal. Some of the music you'll hear this season is by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com, licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 4.0, but most of the music you'll hear this season is from Blue Dot Sessions. The original Mattachine Society Jester logo is used courtesy of One Archives at USC Libraries. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Devlin Camp. See you next week. Why would you feel that the homophile movement should continue as an entity once it has reached the stage of acceptance whereby the, uh, our people could branch out into other other endeavors? Maybe it should. Should it be dissolved? <laughs> no, you suggested it. No, I know that. But you she might have implied it. <laughs> no, I know you didn't say it. Should we put ourselves out of business once the laws have changed? No, no, I think we should remain uh, an entity as long as there is any kind of specific discrimination against homosexuals. Mm-hmm. But I think we ought to <coughs> grow up, you know, if you pardon the expression, you know, as we achieve more recognition and more toleration, we grow accordingly, you know. But I think as long as there's any specific discrimination against homosexuals, mm-hmm. then we have a movement. You know, and, and not until the last little bit of it is erased until we forget about this and broaden ourselves out.